In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Betches Media presents... Like beer? I don't know if you do. Okay. Do you like beer, Senator, or not? Um, Mom, I want a vape. Ah! Nude pictures of Trump. Come on now. Don't mess with me. The Betches Sup Podcast. How dare you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Betches Sup Pride Quarantine Edition. I'm Brian Russell Smith. And I'm Chris Burns. And today, we're going to be talking about LGBTQ history. Let's get into it. Hi, Chris. What's up, bitch? How are you? Not much. What a week, huh? What a week, and it is only Wednesday. Well, it's only Wednesday, but for those of you listening, today is Friday. Um, so recording right now, though, it is Wednesday. It is Wednesday. Right. I actually just sent a that meme of uh, Liz Lemon and 30 Rock to the company Slack about being like, oh, what a week. And then um, Jack Donaghy is like, Lemon, it's Wednesday. And then someone replied, what a year, huh? Lemon, it's June. <laughs> I saw that that's why i was thinking that it's only wednesday i mean i because i was in the shower this morning and i was like really just trying to remember what day it was and i had no idea because it is yeah been, it has just been a long a long week okay so some of you may be asking who are you <laughs> chris what are you doing here you're not one of the batches stop you're and- not a, a political speaker and i say well this month i am <laughs> Exactly. So, okay. Um, quarantine history is what we're doing today. So for the month of June, the Betches Sub team, we are doing a quarantine edition series where every Friday, Chris and I will be coming here live to your ears. Since we are in uh, the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, our typical Pride experience will not be happening this year. And so we thought here at the Betches Up that this would be a good opportunity to, you know, sort of reflect and learn about, you know, LGBTQ history because you don't really get to learn about it growing up in high school or K through 12 in your curriculum because it's just not a part of it. So we wanted to take it upon ourselves to teach you and also, you know, I'm learning. As well. And also, you know, after this past week of these protests in light of George Floyd and, you know, against police brutality, uh, we really wanted to learn. And, you know, it is incumbent upon us to educate ourselves about the history of Black and or LGBTQ people because... The fact of the matter is, it was not a part of our curriculum and our education. And there is a gap. It may as well be called straight white history, what we learn. And not only that, it's written in a way that is glorifying straight white history. Just thinking of Christopher Columbus, you know, um, the founding fathers, more than half of whom were slave owners. And, you know, yes, we do learn about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, but what about before that? You know, there's 
the Tulsa City Massacre. There were 400 plus years of slavery in this country. And there were a lot of, you know, revolts um, that were, you know, powerful. And it was all pretty much just erased, not erased, but just not really recorded. And it's interesting because, you know, if you think about it, maybe we could have fit some of that history in between cursive and learning how to play a recorder. Like, yes, I know how to play hot crust buns on a recorder. However, I never learned about the Tulsa City Massacre. Um, And so that is why every Friday of this Pride Month, we will be doing a new series we're calling Queerington History, where we do just that. And so um, we decided to take it upon ourselves to learn and educate ourselves and others in the time that we have. Um, And so that is why every Friday of this Pride Month, we will be doing a new series we're calling Queerington History where we learn. Amen, bitch. And so this week we are starting with notable Black LGBTQ plus members Mm -hmm. who are not in any of those books that we learned in school, at least Mm -hmm. to my memory. And I was in honors history, so (laughs) I would remember. Exactly. That's the other thing about like high school. I remember how much like emphasis everyone would be like, I'm taking eight P X Y and Z. And I'm like, okay, well now I'm like, well, fuck off. Good for you. What did that do for you? Nothing. Yes. I was dumb math and science, but I'm still here. (laughs) I know. It's like, I'm sorry that you were such a stressed out 15 year old. Like, um, (laughs) anyways. Uh, so yeah, we're learning about, uh, queer people of color this week. Um, and both of whom were activists And so the first person that we are talking about is named, her name is Stormy DeLarvery. Um, And, you know, we found a few different pronunciations for Stormy DeLarvery, and we are using the one from the New York Times because... Yes, the New York Times tells you how to pronounce her name, but not even in a great way. Mm -hmm. But, and we found different clips of her saying her own name and other people saying her name, and it's kind of different all the time. So... Here we are. We're hopeful um, that Stormy DeLarvery is the correct pronunciation. Yes. If we're okay. wrong, let us know. <laughs> so Stormy DeLarvery was a singer, a circus performer, a quote guardian, a bodyguard. At one point she was a bodyguard for mobsters in Chicago, uh, a drag king and a lesbian activist who may or may not have thrown the first punch at the Stonewall Inn in 1969. And she says that she did throw that first punch, according to that New York Times article, mm-hmm. which I think is badass. Even if she didn't, mm-hmm. she's, she did in her mind, and I live for that. So going back, Stormy was born in New Orleans in 1920 to a black mother and a white father. Her mother was actually a servant in her father's home. So eventually they got married and she was actually never issued a birth certificate because at the time interracial marriage was still against the law, but she celebrated her birthday on December 24th. Um, And growing up, she was bullied a lot and she was beaten up for being biracial. And so at the age of 18, she moved to Chicago. And in the beginning of her career as a performer, and a singer, she sang dressed as a woman. And then she eventually visited friends in Miami and became a drag king. Um, I love the term drag king. 
I think it's really cool because it sounds like Dragon, but that's probably my nerd coming out. Yeah, I Drag Kings, I think, are not as well known as Drag Queens, which is a shame, but mm-hmm. Drag Kings put on some slaying shows, and the most recent season of Dragula was actually won by a Drag King for the first time, so that's something. Well, there you go. They should probably, maybe like RuPaul's Drag Race should start incorporating Drag Kings. Yes, well, Ru has, you know, interesting insight on things like that. So we'll save that for a different episode. Yeah, we'll sign a petition. Okay. um, So she eventually ended up in New York. And unlike some other drag performers, she would often wear her drag in public life, walking around New York in her suits um, and starting something of a trend. She said, I was doing it. And then other people started doing it. She would wear these like, really amazing suits with like tight pants, but like baggies jackets. You guys need to Google and see what she's wearing. Um, it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty great. There's some really amazing photos of her. Um, and back then cross-dressing was illegal and you could be arrested for not wearing a certain number of quote, gender-appropriate articles of clothing. This was all a part of, you know, these laws and rules that were being made to, you know, really just target LGBTQ people at the time. Yeah. This was a lot of, like, the reasoning behind Stonewall when Stonewall started. There were so many, like, bullshit laws. Like, if a woman was wearing, um, I think it was, like, zippered pants or something like that, Mm -hmm. like a pant with zippers, you could get arrested for that. Mm-hmm. But regardless, she was one of many, quote, butch lesbians, okay, I didn't say that, who fought the police at Stonewall. And she says she was the first one to throw the punch, telling after Ellen, the cop hit me and I hit him back, which I tend to believe. Yeah. And again, look up this woman, she's amazing. But she was hit on the head with the billy club and handcuffed and was bleeding from the head when she brazenly turned to the crowd and hollered, why don't you do something? Which, I mean, yeah. ringing a little too true still. And apparently that's what sort of, you know, started like a big reaction in the crowd and the people. So. Yeah. Which, I mean, the, the exact events of what happened at Stonewall is like not fully known, but mm-hmm. Stormy was dragged into a paddy wagon and that's when the scene exploded. So she was, after all of that, uh, I think her life afterwards is kind of just as interesting. Mm-hmm. She was a member of the Stonewall Veterans and would work security for a living at the Cubbyhole and Henrietta Hudson, which I find, like, those are still hopping lesbian bars mm-hmm. in the West Village that I have frequented heavily. Mm-hmm. Cubbyhole? Are you kidding? It's the best. I know. I've been to Cubbyhole a few times. It is, it is fun. I will say it can be cramped, but, you know... When it gets that cramped, I'm like, I should leave. I shouldn't be occupying this space. Anymore. Yes, it's. I mean, it is a dive bar for all dive bars. Also, bizarrely, where Andy Cohen had his um, baby shower, he had like something at Cubby Hole, which was bizarre. Really? Yeah. Maybe he lives nearby. I mean, he must. But either way, mm-hmm. bizarro. And so Stormy patrolled the West Village into her 80s with a licensed gun and 
was on the lookout for what she referred to as ugliness, which was any form of intolerance um, and bullying or abuse of her baby girls who were all the other lesbians throughout the West Village. Uh, the the owners of Henrietta Hudson like became her legal guardian like mm-hmm. later in her life mm-hmm. when she was um, forced to move into a nursing home after living in the Chelsea, Ho- Chelsea Hotel for decades, which is like, an iconic uh, gay living space, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't even just know iconic, how to it, Not even necessarily gay. I mean, it just happens to be gay because it's in Chelsea. Yeah, I but mean, like, Amanda Lepore Smith, still lives there. Yeah, D- Amanda Lepore still lives there. Yeah. What? Um, there, I know, there's like, only I think like two or three apartments still there. Yeah, Patty Smith lived there. Amanda Lepore lived there. Like in Patty Smith's book, Just Kids, she talks about like meeting Janice Chaplin and like Jimi Hendrix at the Chelsea hotel. It's just this like really iconic place. If people yeah. And it know. still looks iconic if you walk by it. I mean, they're like doing work outside of it, but it's still very cool. If it's you been ever like, it's this- been like under construction for since I moved to the city decades. like eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, so, so it is, it is cool to walk by though, but I worked at film festival on 23rd street, which is where it is. And mm-hmm. Amanda Lepore was there and I watched her walk out of the, out of the movie theater, which was right down the street, and watched her just walk back to her apartment at the mm-hmm. Chelsea Hotel. Was the uh, was the film festival at SVA? Uh, no, it was actually it was partly at SVA, but also uh, Cinepolis oh, okay. Chelsea is there. Anyway, so the New York Times, this quote I thought was like so powerful. Um, Tall, androgynous, and armed, she held a state gun permit. Miss Delarvey roamed Lower Seventh and Eighth Avenues in points between into her 80s she literally walked the streets of downtown manhattan like a gay superhero said lisa canastrachi i think is how it is pronounced and she owns henrietta hudson and was her legal guardian later into until she passed away when she was like in her 90s i think which was in 2014 she was not to be messed with by any stretch of the imagination and i think it's a to point out that this woman was working um the door at Henrietta Hudson and Cubby Hall. That's no tiny feat. So if this woman was doing this into her old age, like God bless. Yeah. But honestly, like what a, a badass, you know, she was, uh, she just lived so many lives. Like she would jump horses in her teen when she was a teenager and at like the Ringley circus and um, just truly wild, like a bodyguard, to mobsters. But to mobsters. I mean, that's like next level. She toured in Europe as a singer. Um, just, just truly remarkable life and activist. Um, yeah, it's it's really really amazing. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. 
And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. The next person that we are going to talk about is Bayard Rustin. So... Some of you may or may not know who he is. Um, Bayard Rustin was a leader and activist during the civil rights movement. He is one of the most prominent yet unknown minds behind the March on Washington, where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous, infamous, I have a dream speech. And he's not unknown because he was a, he's not unknown because he was a closeted gay man, but because he wasn't closeted. He um, did not wish to hide the fact that he was gay. However, he knew if he was more in the spotlight that he could, you know, be a liability to the movement um, at the time. He had also had ties to the Communist Party in his past. Um, and so he was more like, he was just very, very powerful person behind the scenes. Um, and so just some, just some background, Bayard Rustin was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania on March 17th in 1912. He moved to New York in 1937. He told his, he told his mother very, very young that he was attracted to men. And she was just like, okay, like, I mean, if that's what you need to do sort of thing. Um, and Rustin was a pacifist. He combined the pacifism of the Quaker religion. He was a Quaker. Um, he combined with the nonviolent resistance taught by Mahatma Gandhi and the socialism espoused by African-American labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, who he would later work with to organize the March on Washington. Um, he has this one quote where he once said, the only weapons we have is our bodies and we have to tuck them in places so wheels don't turn. Um, and speaking of his communist past, he had briefly been involved with the Young Communist League, though he soon quit the party after it ordered him to cease protesting racial segregation in the U.S. armed forces. Um, it's interesting. You know how J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover like, would like keep all these files of people? Mm -hmm. He is one of those people. Um, oh. Yeah. So he basically was a speaker and an activist and an organizer. And in 1944, he refused to fight in World War II. He was then jailed as a conscientious objector and sentenced to three years in jail. Um, and he ended up serving 26 months. Uh, however, he before he was released, he was moved to a high security jail because he continued to protest against segregation and was very open about his homosexuality. Um, however, that would not be the first time he was arrested. He was also arrested in 1947. He was participating in a protest against the segregation of public transit system in North Carolina. Um, he was sentenced to work on a chain gang for several weeks. 
Jesus. Wow. Jesus. Like, uh, craziness. Um, it's wild to think about how little ago that sort of things was happening. How, like, it, that wasn't that long ago. That was um, not that long ago. In the grand scheme of things, it was very much not that long ago. In the context of time, yeah. Uh, there was also an instance of him being arrested in 1953. He was in California, and he had just spoken at, you know... Uh, at a protest or a rally, and uh, he was caught in a car with two white men, you know, hooking up, having sex, and he was charged with lewd conduct and vagrancy. He served 60 days, and he said of this incident, he said, I know now that for me, sex meat must be sublimated if I am to live with myself and in this world longer, which is just very, very sad. Basically just saying he needs to, like, change... He's like, like hide, yeah, change like a little to bit. Hide being, yeah. I mean, imagine getting put in jail for 60 days for having sex in a car. My friend got caught having sex in a car and got a ticket. I know. I mean, all the things he was arrested for was because he was black and because he was gay and he was fighting for rights and... And refusing I, to apologize for it. Exactly. And like, obviously you can't have sex in public, but you like you said, your friend got a fine. And I wonder... You know, had he been a white man with a woman, would he had faced the same consequences? I doubt it. Would he have even been, you know, stopped? Exactly. By the 1950s, Rustin was an expert organizer of human rights protests. In 1958, he played an important role in coordinating a march in Aldermaston, England, in which 10,000 attendees demonstrated against nuclear weapons. And in the 1950s is also when he met Dr. Martin Luther King and by 1955 was working as a strategist and an advisor for him. Rustin taught Dr. King about Gandhi's nonviolent resistance and advised him on the tactics of civil disobedience. And in 1956, he helped organize the Montgomery bus boycott, though remained out of the spotlight, which we definitely touched on the Montgomery bus boycott when I was in high school, but it was like a, uh, you know, a mention. Mm-hmm. Well, I only like, know about it because I like have, you know, educated myself about it further. Well, you know, it's like they and we learn about we know who we know the name Rosa Parks, but there's also you know there's some, you know, background on that as well as whereas she wasn't even the first person to refuse to get off a bus, but she yeah. was she's just the one that had been elevated. Yeah, it's you know. In the early 1960s was when he was recruited by African-American labor leader A. Philip Randolph to organize the March on Washington. And there were many Mm -hmm. struggles to organizing this, to unite feuding civil rights leaders, fend off opposition from Southern segregationists who opposed civil rights, fend off opposition from Northern liberals who advocated a more cautious approach, and figure out the practical logistics of the demonstration itself, which... I mean, I I can't organize a happy hour, so I, I can't was, imagine. <laughs> I can't get four friends together to do a Zoom brunch. It's like, <laughs> and to take to organize with all of this in mind. It's like on the Real Housewives when they're like, oh, "I have to have this party," but these two girls don't like each other, mm-hmm. and it's like they make a whole fucking show about that, mm-hmm. and then you know, it's just wild. Um, he's quoted saying, "We plan out precisely the number of toilets that we would." that would be needed for a quarter of a million people. How many doctors, how many first aid stations, what people should bring with them to eat in their lunches. I mean, he had to do all of this while Mm -hmm. trying to remain out of the spotlight Mm -hmm. 
I mean, this is insane. And then yeah. about a month before the protest, U.S. Senator Strom Thurmond took to the Senate floor to brand Rustin, a communist, draft dodger, and a homosexual, entering into the congressional record, a picture of Rustin talking to King while King was in a bathtub. Which... <laughs> it's crazy. They were just trying... They were trying to, like, delegitimize the march by delegit like by attacking him. Um... Obviously, it did not work. <laughs> Obviously, it did not work, but it's also like, look, he's gay. They have meetings while he was in a bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, some people, like, some people just talk in the bathtub. I'm mm-hmm. watching Killing Eve this season, and one of the, like, bosses in it, like, has all of her best thoughts in the bathtub and has all of her meetings in the bathroom. Oh, my God. High showers, all of my best ideas. It's, anyway... Despite this, 250,000 people did end up attending the March on Washington. The march was one of the largest political rallies for human rights in U.S. history. The march is credited with helping to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and preceded the Selma Voting Rights Movement, which led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And Rustin continued to be an activist until his death in 1987. In 2013, Barack Obama, whose elections the march made possible, and the first president to publicly come out and support gay marriage posthumously, awarded Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States. He was also posthumously pardoned by California Governor Gavin Newsom in regards to his arrest. Yeah, the uh, the lewd sexual act one. That they <laughs> Which, if too little too late, was not in the dictionary. <laughs> It's like, thanks now that I'm dead for <laughs> I know pardoning me, but better no. better late than never, they say. Yeah, and it's just, it's crazy to think, you know, um, that he was responsible for so much, yet he was so unknown, like, yeah, relatively unknown, unknown, you know? I mean, I mean, he's not a household name, frankly. Yeah. It's like, a tough pill to swallow that a contestant on The Bachelor is more well-known than this man, you know? I know. Yeah. Um, okay, I think, guys, we just want to throw some facts at you. Yeah, so before we go, we just want to, like, you know, really, you know, emphasize, uh, you know, there is a difference between, you know, the experiences of someone like Chris and myself yes, um, versus a lot of people in the LGBTQ community, you know. And I think, yeah, especially now, like there's a thread on Twitter that someone made and it was um, like racist gay porn stars was the the title. But there was a kid on it. I mean, all of them are like heinous, but there was someone on it and my friend was like, oh my God, this is the guy that like lives in my building that I see on Grindr all the time. And I see whatever. And it's this like, for lack of a better term, like white twink going on about how he'll vote whole whole march for Black Lives Matter when all black people are marching for him and how he's been called a faggot on the train. So nobody likes him either. Why should he have to come out and and I'm just like, okay, so like we, so by the illus- people we just illustrated, amongst many other activists, you know, like for example, Marsha P. Johnson, you yeah. know, they, um, and you know, Stormy Delabry, they, 
it was so much hard. They fought for the privileges that we now have, you know, because we are, you know, yes, we are gay and that marginalizes us. We are also, however, cis white men who do not have to worry about, you know, walking down the street, walking into stores. Whereas, you know, and so they, because they fought for us to have these rights and they are not reaping the same benefits that we, we have, you know? And so that's why it's important for people, for us to say something, you know, because, you know, like we were saying, you know, black women, black transgender women, um, they live at this intersection of, you know, sexism, transphobia and racism and it just, you know, it just, it's much harder. And it, you can see it within the stats that... You can see it. It's like Black Chris people post. in general are marginalized within a marginalized community. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it drives me crazy when I hear white gay twinks who are like wealthy and Instagramming live from their... Um, in Williamsburg apartment that their parents pay for about how they have the same experience as a black trans woman, which is just like objectively not true. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, 3.7% of African Americans in the U S are LGBTQ, which is around a million. And one third of those of African American same sex couples are raising children, which I think is interesting because I mean, that's a lot of same-sex couples raising children. And Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. has the highest population, but Georgia, North Carolina, New York, and other states in the Deep South also have very large populations of LGBT African Americans, which is interesting because a lot of those states don't have any laws or have very few laws um, with non-discrimination protection for these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a 2012 report found 32% of children being raised by black same sex couples were living in poverty compared to 13% that were raised by heterosexual black parents and only 7% by heterosexual white parents. So 7% to 32% is a giant leap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and black gender, black transgender people even face even more severe rates of poverty with 34% living in extreme poverty compared to 9% of non-transgender black people. Yeah. And on that note, so like black transgender women face the highest level of fatal violence within the LGBT community and are much less likely to call police in fear of being re-victimized by law enforcement. 38% of black transgendered people who have interacted with police report that there has been um, some sort of a harassment. 14% report there's been physical assault and 6% report that there's been sexual assault. So these people, I mean, they black transgender women, a video like just came out recently mm-hmm. of a black transgender woman getting like beat in a bodega. And it's like, discrimination almost at like the highest level they have nowhere to turn and nowhere to turn where they can feel safe in 2019 alone 26 transgender and gender non-conforming people most of whom were black trans women were murdered as a result of the violence against them and while the details of each case differ they're not all like strangers that just saw a trans woman and and killed her it's you know from partners or different living environments but it's all because 
of the discrimination around them when it comes to employment and housing and healthcare and other mm-hmm. necessities that they are barred from getting because of the discrimination against them. Also, one of the women that I read about died while at Rikers mm-hmm. and was just found dead in her cell. And another died after being in ICE custody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of these are unsolved or, you know, mm-hmm. barely solved. It's like... Yeah. Um, it's really like... So that's why, you know, when this week started to happen with uh you know these protests and stuff and june 1st came about it was just like you know we really need to and you know this whole blackout tuesday situation is like we really need to make sure we're focusing on you know this struggle and so just like i was frustrated this earlier this week I, we, we shared some posts with each other about some gays in their yeah in their in their in their um speedos posting their pride posts like great good for you maybe read the room maybe not right now and like I what think, you, yeah i think maybe it, like if you're listening right now and you're and you are you know trying to figure out what to do it's like you know just making sure you're amplifying queer people of color um yeah i think it's important to remember just because you're queer does not mean you have the same experience as other queer people and that race like, like there is very much marginalized people within our community that are discriminated against from people within our community. Mm-hmm. And I posted something on the Everyone's Gay Story today that is someone talking about that, how, like, even on gay dating apps, I mean, you'll see, like, people love just, like, no fats, no femmes, no Asians. is like, yeah. but that goes beyond that for sure. I mean, I've seen accounts that are, like, no black people, sorry, just my type, just my preference. I'm not racist. And I'm like, if you're putting I'm not racist in your dating profile, like, mm-hmm. I feel like maybe you are. If you ever have to say, I'm not racist, but, you, you usually are probably racist. Yeah. Um, you know, so you, what you can do, like we were trying to, it's amplify queer people of color um, and their voices, you know, educate yourselves. Hopefully this helped a little. Um, I learned personally and, you know, yeah. donate money when you can, where you can distribute that wealth. It's like, I saw someone say something about like how there ha- there were, there were some looting going on and they were like, Oh great. How about, you know, the looting that's been going on for centuries from entire, <laughs> yeah. entire cultures and like, you know, the yeah, 1%. That's, that's another thing that I think a lot of gay white men forget or like I do drag a lot of drag queens forget like a lot of the things that we do and we say and perform even are like appropriation from black culture before like Mm -hmm. a lot of the the sayings that we say if you trace it back was originally said by black trans women Mm-hmm. And like the whole, you know, watch Pose, okay, people? Like, mm-hmm. watch yeah. the beginning of, or like of ball culture, which is where a lot of drag originated from. Is mm-hmm. like, so you're discriminating against these people that really we would be nothing without. Mm-hmm. Beautifully said. Thank you. All right, everyone. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, next week we'll be we'll be back here on Fridays 
to give you a little bit more quarantine history. So until democracy returns, I'm Brian Russell Smith. And I'm Chris Burns. And this has been the Betches Sup Podcast. The Betches Sup Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman. Our podcast managers are Mike Coscarelli and Sean Kilby. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. The Sup is created by Sammy Fishbein. Be sure to follow us at Betches underscore Sup on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send your emails to Sup at Betches.com. Betches.